0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. In 2016, when Steve Bannon took over Donald Trump's presidential campaign and steered him to victory, the term alt right entered the American conversation. The violence one year ago in Charlottesville, Virginia, fueled the prominence of the alt right as a political force. What is the alt right, and where did it come from? How large is it, and how large is its online audience? On today's show, you'll hear from Thomas J. Main about these and other questions about the alt right. He is a professor at Baruch College, City University of New York, and author of a new title from the Brookings Institution Press The Rise of the Alt Right. Find out in this interview with Brookings Press Director Bill Finan why Professor Main says the alt right represents a central challenge to democratic liberalism, both in America and across the world. Also on today's show, David Wessel, in his regular economic update, discusses President Trump's tariffs, asking what effect they are having now on the economy as a whole, and what effect they could have in the future. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And now, on with the interview. Here's Bill Finan with Thomas
1: Maine calling into our studio. Thanks, Fred, and hello, Tom. Hi there. Tom, I first want to ask, what led you to do research on the alt-right?
2: Well, let's see. As the presidential election of 2016 was heating up, I had just finished another big academic project as a book on the homeless. I was looking for something else to do. I had encounters with what might be called the proto-alt-right in the past, going Mm -hmm. back as early as 1990. And then when I left behind the homeless project and started looking at political scene more generally, I discovered these proto-alt-rightists had really begun to achieve a toehold in American political discourse, and so I decided to respond
1: to that. So let's do some definitions to begin. What does alt-right stand for?
2: Well, alt-right is short for alternative right. Okay, And the term was coined or co-coined by Richard Spencer, who nowadays is editor of an alt-right web magazine called altright.com, and it was also co-coined by Paul Gottfried. Gottfried wrote an article for a conservative magazine that spoke of the development of an alternative to traditional conservatism, and Spencer gave that the title of The Decline and Rise of an Alternative Right. And Mm. that's
1: where the title came from. So it's sort of a neo-rightist, neo-rightism would be another another way. Yeah,
2: I think what you could say is if you go back to the beginnings of the mainstream conservative, post-war conservative movement, which is usually identified as Bill Buckley's establishment of the National Review Mm -hmm. in 1955, early on, one of the things Buckley did was He said overt racists for a while. National Review ran some pro segregationist articles, but they abandoned that soon. So Buckley banned overt racists, overt anti-Semites, also and Randians and other people he regarded as marginal, including the John Birch Society. So this group of people became known as right wing extremism, Mm -hmm. and they having been pushed out of the main platform, of conservatism. They didn't get much publicity, they didn't get much traction, but they hung on for a long time and they never completely disappeared. And they morphed as time went by. And by the 80s, they were being called not right-wing extremists, but paleoconservatives. And what happened was their ideology, which is anti-liberal democratic and racialist, Didn't get much traction until the beginning of the 21st century. And what happened at the beginning of the 21st century is, one, you have the American political system, which was at the time we had a Republican president and the Republican Party was strong. This is George W. Bush. All of a sudden, beginning with 9-11, the American politics gets hit by a series of crises Mm -hmm. like 9-11 like the second Iraq war, like the financial crisis, like visible changes in demography and so forth. So that kind of shakes up the status quo and opens at least some people up to the idea that, hey, we need some new thinking. And that especially happens on the right because it's the Republicans and George W. Bush that takes that hit. Then the other thing that happens is with the creation of the Internet, All of a sudden, a very low cost, a very non-capital intensive mechanism of mass communication becomes available to everybody. And so now, being excluded from a print magazine, which used to mean that if you couldn't find another print magazine to publish you or if you couldn't start your own, being excluded from a print magazine like the National Review Mm -hmm. used to cast you into the fringe of American politics. Now, if you couldn't get into the National Review, you could start your own web magazine. And so these ideas that had been developed by the paleocons, as they were called, and became radicalized as the 21st century continued, they finally managed to find more of a mass audience. And that was how the alt-right came to get a toehold in American political discourse and came to crystallize.
1: You make a disturbing claim in the book, you write, The book's main thesis is that the alt-right represents the first new philosophical competitor in the West to democratic liberalism broadly defined since the fall of communism. That's a tall order. You spend considerable time in the second half of the book discussing and critiquing alt-right thinkers. Although I bristle to use that term to describe what they say as thinking. Just how tightly hewn, how well argued, thought out is what you call the political ideology of the alt-right? I would say a couple of things. First of all, it's interesting. It's telling that
2: a number of alt-right sites, including Richard Spencer at one of his old alt-right publications, which was Radix Journal, actually pulled that quote from an earlier article of mine and ran with it and said, yes, this is what we are. We are a challenger to liberal democracy. Now, in saying that, the alt-right conceives of itself as an ideological movement. Okay, It's not so much a voting block. It's not a membership organization or a political party. It's a relatively small group of people who formulate ideas and arguments and disseminate information and disinformation, which is supposed to influence the way other people think about politics. So the alt-right calls this their metapolitical strategy, or more conventionally, we might call it an ideological strategy, influence how people think. So they regard themselves, and in a certain sense they're correct, as primarily an intellectual movement. Now, does that mean, maybe an intellectual movement, does that mean their ideas are any good? Does that mean their arguments are convincing? Does that mean their information is accurate? <laughs> Generally, it does not mean that. And as a matter of fact, as I document in a fair amount of detail, even though some of the alt-right spokespeople are educated and literate, at least much more so than the old John Birch Society
1: members used to be. That was one thing that actually caught my attention. They're graduates of Yale, the University of Virginia.
2: Yes. Well, and that's interesting. Certainly, if you go back to the John Birch Society, there weren't many graduates of Yale and the University of Virginia, and there weren't many references to uh, German philosophy and uh, so forth in John Birch Society material. And of course, the alt-right makes a great fuss over their good education, at least some of them have. One should not be overly impressed by that, okay? Some of the alt-right leaders are by no means unintelligent, and they are articulate. Some hold or have held academic positions, but there are a few of them that are really distinguished academics. There are a few of them that really could be described as experts in their field. For the most part, they are intellectual amateurs, non-experts, and non-academics or marginal academics. So yes, that's true. They are fairly well-educated, and that distinguishes them from the early right-wing extremists. Mm -hmm. But it turns out, upon examination, that their arguments are very unconvincing, for instance, maybe the essence, if you had to boil down alt-right ideology to a catchphrase, it's that all men are not created equal. Almost everybody in the alt-right fulminates against the idea of Jeffersonian equality. Mm. However, if you look at their arguments they're not very convincing.
1: So Um, I was going to ask you about one example of that in your book of the so-called academic approach to give credence to the absurd and the dangerous is your discussion of Kevin McDonald, who's a professor of psychology at UC Long Beach. Can you tell us about him and his work and his methodology?
2: Sure. McDonald had a Ph.D. in psychology, I believe it was, or perhaps evolutionary biology from the University of Connecticut. He did that work back in the 60s. And he ended up at one of the University of California campuses and did publish some work on evolutionary biology and psychology in academic journals a long time ago. It's hard to know exactly what led him to move off into fringe of intellectual life. But Mm -hmm. in the mid-90s, he began publishing a a three-volume magnum opus, as it were, on Jews and Judaism, these works were not published by an academic publisher, and they were highly eccentric and have never gained any traction in the academic world. His, his basically his argument is that Jewish marriage customs, the fact that they had a clergy that could marry, unlike Catholics, for example, meant that the smartest people in the Jewish community married. And produced offspring, and that this had the unintended effect of boosting the overall IQ of Jews because their clergy married. So this gave the Jews an evolutionary advantage in their competition with their so-called host Gentile societies, and also it produced, as a result of genetic inbreeding, population that had personality traits that were. uh, very uh, clannish. Uh, And so the result was the Jews emerged as a subspecies that is very aggressive and successfully wages Darwinian competition against Gentile society. That is basically the argument for which no serious evolutionary biologist or
1: psychologist or student of Jewish history gives any support. Or any sane person either. You argue in the book that alt-right thinking is different from that of the Ku Klux Klan, say, or neo-Nazism, yet race, racialism, anti-Semitism, as you're just pointing out here, too, are essential elements of it now. How did those become essential elements, racialism and anti-Semitism?
2: Yes, okay, it's interesting. If you go back to the earliest days of post-war right-wing extremism, let's say, to the John Birch Society of the 50s and early 60s. Well, now, the John Birch Society told lies about the Civil Rights Movement, which it claimed was a communist front. However, in at least some of their literature, the John Birch Society would occasionally give lip service to racial equality and would even say they would have published a flyer on what's wrong with civil rights back in the early 60s, and it was mostly absurd, and it made charges of communist conspiracy. But there was this boilerplate about how, oh, well, needless to say, most people in the civil rights movement of all races are decent people, and it was, unfortunately their movement has been taken over by communists. So mm-hmm. you used to get at least this kind of boilerplate expression of mm-hmm. racial egalitarianism.
1: So all men could be equal if you're John Bircher in some ways.
2: Right. They would at least say that
1: occasionally.
2: So what happened to that? Well, I think what happened was over time, the conservative ideology kind of eventually broke into the mainstream during the late 70s and in the 80s. Okay. One of the reasons that happened is because of the tensions of the 1960s, it pushed a number of of academics and New York and other intellectuals further right, and these were known as the neoconservatives. So you had the center of gravity in the intellectual world shifted somewhat to the right, and that shift brought in a new generation of conservative thinkers who were um, Jewish and ethnic. The obvious examples would be Norman Podhoris and Nathan Glazer and Irving Kristol. So, right, anyhow, the editors of commentary
1: uh, to, and partisan review. And...
2: Right, right. So what happens then is all of a sudden these people, the far-right extremists, are now marginalized more than ever, and they turn around and they say, oh, oh look what's happening. You know, Jews are coming into our movement, all right? So at this point, the far-right, now understood as paleoconservatives, they want to produce a more specious, a more modern sounding kind of anti Semitic argument, that's where Kevin McDonald's thought becomes useful. And then once you've bought into this idea that, hey, you know, there are these genetic differences between, let's say, Gentiles and Jews, and that's really problematic, well, the obvious next application of that theory is, hey, you know, blacks and whites are really very different. There are genetic differences between blacks and whites. So what started out as a use of Darwinianism, pseudo-Dorwinianism against Jews, gets expanded into a full-blown theory of racialism, right? And I think McDonald and others were particularly influential in bringing about this even greater emphasis on racialism in the far right, which is, of course, not to say that Racism wasn't characteristic of the far-right from the beginning, but it became a central, explicit, florid part of far-right ideology, even more than it had been.
0: And now, here's David Wessel, director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy, with his economic update.
3: I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. Depending on the headline you read this morning, President Trump's tariffs are either A, making America great again, B, a tactic that has yet to affect the economy one way or the other, or C, eroding the institutions that produce 75 years of post-World War II prosperity. So which is it? Scattered across the economy, there's evidence that the tariffs the U.S. has imposed and the retaliatory tariffs imposed by China and others are biting. Bloomberg reports that Europeans are canceling orders for blue jeans from a 10-year-old North Carolina firm called Raleigh Denim. The New York Times says at least a dozen local newspapers are curtailing publication days because of tariffs on Canadian newsprint. The Wall Street Journal says an electric bike startup called M2S Bikes in North Carolina put plans to build a network of 100 dealers on hold because tariffs boosted the cost of the bikes and motors it imports from China. In an Ohio Tusco display, a metal fabricator, furloughed 30 employees. It says tariffs are raising the cost of both domestic and imported steel and aluminum. New England lobstermen say they've been squeezed because China has doubled tariffs on seafood imported from the U.S., but lowered the tariffs on Canadian lobsters. But if you step back and look at the U.S. economy as a whole, it's hard to conclude that the Trump trade war is doing much damage yet. The economy has been growing. The second quarter was strong. Employers have been hiring. The stock market has flinched, but it hasn't crashed. There is, again, so far, no sign that industries with greater exposure to foreign sales have been investing or hiring any differently than other industries. Goldman Sachs recently surveyed the analysts who monitor 20 sectors of the economy about the impact of the trade war in each of those sectors. They found a lot of worry, but not much change in hiring or investment. But the analysts expect profits to be squeezed in nearly half the sectors they cover. And that's a reminder that things are a lot more complicated than they sometimes seem. There's this simple-minded assertion that tariffs are fully and always passed along to consumers. But who bears the burden of tariffs? The country that exports or the country that imports? The consumer or the producer? Depends on a whole lot of factors. Nonetheless, nothing we've seen so far adds up to anything like economic devastation. So should you relax? No. Why? Well, one, there's a widespread belief, or maybe hope is a better word, that the trade war won't get out of control. There's a truce between the U.S. and Europe. There are hints that Mexico and Canada will agree to changes in NAFTA that allow President Trump to declare victory. But then there's China, and that's a different story. Hopes for a quick compromise, perhaps where China just agrees to buy more of our stuff, have evaporated. The U.S. has imposed tariffs on Chinese goods. China has retaliated. China shows little interest in changing the intellectual property or investment policies that do put the U.S. at a disadvantage. And we know from history that when a rising economic power challenges a hegemon like the United States, economic, political, diplomatic, even military conflicts are likely and can escalate rapidly, sometimes by miscalculation. Two- The ripple effects of a trade war may go far beyond imports and exports. Say stock market investors decide one day that all this is going badly. Sentiment shifts abruptly. Stocks plunge. That can hurt the economy, of course. People have less money to spend. It can also shatter confidence quickly with implications for business investment and hiring. And just because that hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it won't. Three, tariffs are never simple. Thousands of companies are seeking exceptions to the tariffs and filings to the U.S. government. And that's an invitation for the worst of crony capitalism, where favored firms get a break and other firms don't. The New York Times, for instance, recently reported that U.S. Steel and Nucor have successfully objected to hundreds of requests by U.S. Steel consumers who want to buy foreign steel. And four, trade gets a bad name these days. Offshoring, lost jobs, shuttered factories— There's a lot to that, but trade has an upside. Low-cost imports help workers stretch the weekly paycheck. Foreign competition prevents U.S. firms from growing complacent. Trade and foreign investment and global supply chains make the world economy more efficient, which means more goods and services for less effort, less poverty. All that is put at risk by tariffs and assaults on the institutions like the World Trade Organization that were founded so that nations would be restrained or discouraged from policies that help their economies at the expense of others. No, the trade war has not yet devastated the U.S. economy, but we may not have seen the worst yet. You can listen to more Wessel's
0: economic updates on our SoundCloud channel.
1: The book makes a major contribution by actually measuring how large an audience the alt-right has. Can you tell us about how you went about designing that process to answer the question of audience size and what you found?
2: Yes, well, when I first got interested in this issue, I was reading some of the alt-right sites, and you had to read this stuff not to believe it, as the saying goes. It was so extreme. And so I started documenting that, and I started talking to people about that, And the response was, oh, my, this, you know, this explicit rejection of all men are created equal, these explicit, vitriolic rejections of democracy and the rule of law and of racism. It's all so bizarre. It can't possibly be more than a handful of people. So therefore, don't write about it. Don't talk about it. Even to mention these ideas is to give them currency. I was very concerned about that. And for a while, I was still concerned about Mm -hmm. that. So the question came up, all right, how big is this movement? Well, that's a very hard question to answer, right? Because the term was very new. There were no public opinion polls that asked people, what do you think of the alt-right? Or for the most part, there were not any public opinion polls like that. So the only hard numbers you could get where you could measure the size of at least some audience for the alt-right was visitorship, that is to say visits and unique visitors to their web magazines. So I was able to get access to a provider of web traffic data. And what I decided to do was say, okay, look, it's not enough to ask how many visitors, how many unique visits the alt-right gets, because what you also have to do is look at other political magazines because the question of how big is a relative question. How big relative to what? So what I did is I found a way to classify web political magazines. I decided just to look at political magazines. So this is just one possible measure of the size of the alt-right. There may well be others, but this is a first cut at determining the size of the movement. And I looked at visits and unique visitors to alt-right political magazines. I looked at 10 of them, which I did not define myself. I spoke to experts and people in the alt-right, and I looked for lists that were put together by somebody other than me as to what was an alt-right site. I came up with 10 of them.
1: Can you name a couple of those?
2: Sure. Let's see. The most radical of the alt-right sites would be the Daily Stormer, which calls itself alt-right, but it features... Extreme neo Nazi rhetoric and images. Also, pretty radical is the right stuff. Right? Mm-hmm. And so, those are the most radical, and then there are several others. And there is a certain gradation in extremism. Maybe the least radical, but I would argue are still a racialist and still essentially anti democratic or pro authoritarian, I would say, is a web outlet called V Dare which is named after Virginia Dare. Who is Virginia Dare? The site identifies usually Virginia Dare as the first white child of English parentage born in the New World and therefore the first American. So V-Dare is considerably less radical than The Daily Stormer, which is overt and obnoxious and vituperative. But V-Dare still, its writers often say in somewhat more measured tones, Oh, no, no. All men are created equal? No, that's wrong. And they they run articles that are uh, quite radical. They run articles that say things like, if experts are agreed that blacks really are more violent than whites, then, gee whiz, segregation would be okay, and that wouldn't be racist because, well, it's true that they're more violent, right? So say the experts, therefore segregation. There are some writers at there that are a little less radical, but the site... It is recognized as an alt-right site, and so I included it in that category. So anyhow, the point is this. If you look at those 10 alt-right sites and you look from the period of time between September 2016 through February 2018, that was the broadest range of data that I could come up with, it turns out that all these alt-right sites together get about 4.4% million visits on average each month and they get about 1.1 million unique visitors each month so then the question then comes out well is that a lot or a little right and in some ways you could say it's a little because if you look at all conservative sites if you look at all liberal sites their audiences are much larger than the size of the right however 4.4 million visits is nothing to sneeze at. So to give you an idea, if you look at, for example, the Weekly Standard, which is a conservative publication, a hate object of the alt-right, among other reasons, it was founded by William Crystal, who was the son of Irving Crystal. Irving Crystal being a prominent Jewish neoconservative, and the alt-right despises the neoconservatives. Well, the alt right websites altogether are pulling in about 4.4 million visits on average a month over the period I discussed. The Weekly Standard was pulling in about 2.3 million.
1: Wow, Dorset. Uh,
2: in some ways, this is unfair because we've put all the alt right sites together and we're just looking at one conservative publication. If we put all the conservative publications together, the conservative publication audience is much larger than that for the alt right, but still. The alt-right, especially when you consider the extreme radicalism of many of its outlets, it's amazing that the alt-right has got a visitorship that's larger than the Weekly Standard, much larger than Commentary, the uh, neoconservative Jewish-oriented political magazine. And so the alt-right, I would say, has achieved an audience, has a toehold, has achieved a platform, in American political discourse, and I would also say it should be kept in mind that since the strategy of the movement is ideological or metapolitical, ideological movements are never led by very large groups. They're not voting blocks. they're not unions, mm-hmm. they're not political parties. They're a relatively small core group, right? professional handlers of ideas, and they're trying to influence other people. And in that way, if you look at other ideological movements, like, for example, the New Left of the 60s, or like the neoconservatives of the 70s and 80s, their publications had relatively small audiences too. And keep in mind that besides the alt-right, you also have an alt-light, which is publications like Breitbart that peddle a less radical version of alt-right ideology, and Breitbart has a visitorship of, during the period I mentioned, about uh, 64 million visits on average a month which made it the largest political web magazine in the country bar none
1: was that when it was under the editorship of steve bannon at that time yes yes yes. i read recently though that it's numbers have fallen off radically breitbart that is i wanted to end by noting that this month the alt rights most public moment occurred one year ago earlier in charlottesville and speaking of strength what would you say is the strength of the movement today compared to, say, a year ago when it received its most public display at Charlottesville?
2: Well, I think the movement has, in some respects, seen a falling off. I think that Charlottesville shocked much of the public. I think that what happened is some of the most radical alt-right sites were declined service by internet service providers. So the Daily Stormer, for example, got kicked off a series of internet providers and its audience shrank dramatically, shrank by like 96%. On the other hand, the audience of the Right Stuff, which also had problems with its provider, the audience of the Right Stuff continues to be close to a million visits and actually went up. However, Uh so there has been this deplatforming and the movement, I would say, is down but not out. And I think what is a great concern is it's fine assuming we're not talking about harassment, if we're not talking about violence, if we're not talking about government censorship, but if we're simply talking about private parties protesting right, and refusing to provide the alt-right with access to their media and their resources, that's entirely legitimate. And so the decline of the alt-right Audience, as a result of those deplatforming efforts, is good. However, one has to be careful because, as I say, they're down but not out, number one. And number two, look, the movement for a while placed a sympathizer, Steve Bannon, in the White House. Okay? And what is also happening is many ideas associated with the movement are slowly being watered down, and in this way they're being expressed at Breitbart, they're being expressed by the Trump administration, they're penetrating into mainstream conservatism in the Republican Party, and what has to be done is, besides just focusing on the most extreme of the alt-right, we have to take these ideas, like, for example, this denial of political equality, and also I think another alt-right idea that's very dangerous is the idea that politics, even domestic politics, is a war between enemies. That's an idea that comes from the Nazi philosopher, Carl Schmitt. Mm -hmm. The alt-right loves Carl Schmitt. They love this idea that politics is a war between friends and enemies. And unfortunately, I see that idea being picked up by the alt-light. So, for example, Stephen Bannon, when he was in the White House, was interviewed by the Wall Street Journal and said explicitly, yes, all politics is war. Well, if all politics is war between enemies, that is fatal for the idea of liberal democracy, and yet that idea is a watered-down version where extreme polarization is emphasized and people who should be just garden variety political opponents start calling each other enemies and so forth. That idea, I think, which was nurtured in the alt-right is beginning to penetrate the mainstream of American political culture and that's very worrisome.
1: And you end the book by talking about the need for gatekeepers just in this way that William F. Buckley with National Review decided not to publish the most extreme views and those views didn't find another outlet. I'm hoping that we find that same kind of gatekeeping today with the Internet. Tom, I want to thank you for coming by today to talk about your new book, The Rise of the Alt-Right. Thank you so much.
0: The Rise of the Alt-Right is available on the Brookings website and wherever you buy books. Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reberedo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. The producers are Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews. And Jessica Pavone and Eric Abalahin provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network which also produces Intersections, hosted by Adriana Pita, Five on 45, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu slash podcasts. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.